Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Thomas Scythe. Uh, it is so good to be with you guys. I am the youth pastor here at our Anderson campus. Um, wow, thank you. Uh, and I absolutely love what I get to do. Uh, I graduated from Texas A&M in 2012. Uh, with a mechanical engineering degree. Uh, but more importantly than any of that, uh, in just over like three or four weeks, I'm about to celebrate my three-year anniversary uh, married to this woman. Uh, so this is Emily. This is my wife. Uh, and, and so uh, we've been married and it'll be for three years in January. So I am so excited. I am so glad uh, to be with you uh, guys tonight. I- I'm excited. Uh, something that I want you to do right now, I want you to picture this in your mind. I want you to take yourself back to high school, okay? I want you to picture the hair that you had, uh, the jackets that you wore, the clothes maybe that you had, and I want you to think about what was the first job interview that you ever had? What was that job that you wanted? Maybe you were like, okay, the allowance I'm getting from mom and dad is no longer good enough. I want to have an income. For me, the first interview that I went to was at the classic American establishment known as Chuck E. Cheese. Um, that was the first job interview I went to. And in my mind, as a kid, I uh, love Chuck E. Cheese. I remember asking my mom, can you please take me to Chuck E. Cheese? And rightfully so, she was hesitant to let me hang out with these characters, uh, which are terrifying. Uh, and I remember I really wanted to go there, play video games, eat pizza, have my birthday there, whatever it is. Uh, and I remember when I turned 15, turned 16, and was saying, I want an income, I interviewed at Chuck E. Cheese. And it took about 90 seconds into that interview for me to realize, I do not want to work here because one of the first questions they asked me was, so you find yourself working here. What do you do when you see a kid throw up in the ball pit? And I said, oh no, mistakes have been made. I do not want to work here. And I realized, I realized something in that interview, in that moment, sometimes work is not as fun as maybe I thought it might be. Uh, sometimes we get into a job and we say, this is not as fun as I thought it was going to be. This is not the job that I wanted. This is not the career path that I'm on. Maybe you enrolled in classes and you picked a major and you were like, I just kind of throw a dart at the board. Okay, ocean engineering, that's it. Uh, and, and you pick and you start taking those classes and you're saying, I don't know if this is what I want to do. What do you do when you find yourself in that situation? Uh, or, or moreover, what do you do when your job is difficult, not because of what you're doing, but because of who you work with? Uh, one of, I love thinking about this because sometimes we have difficult bosses or difficult people to, to work with. And it makes me think of one of our favorite American bosses, Michael Scott, who gives us, gives us sage advice. You know, he says, would I rather be feared or love? Easy both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. Uh, and I think about that and I say, uh, sometimes we encounter difficult jobs and difficult people in jobs because there is something in us that has trouble sometimes submitting to authority. We are all called to submit to authority, but there's something in us that has trouble doing that. And so when you think about your classes, you say, how can my professor assign this project over Thanksgiving break? Doesn't he know that I have Netflix shows that I'm trying to binge watch this break? Like what's going on? Or maybe your boss asks you to stay late and he's saying, I need you to finish this. And you're like, there's snow outside. I need to play in it. That's how I enjoy it. Uh, Or maybe you you are asked to do something and, and, and maybe there's something about your boss. You're like, I just don't like him that much or like her that much. I remember for me, 
It was working at Chick-fil-A. That was my very first job ever. It was a mall Chick-fil-A. It was opened at 10 a.m. It was awesome. Uh, and I remember working at that Chick-fil-A and there, I began to find things there that I did not like to do. They would say, can you stay late? Hey, can you mop this up? And I was like, I didn't make that mess. And they were like, oh, we want you to mop that up. And sometimes it was, hey, can you redo this order? And I was like, that wasn't my fault. I didn't, it wasn't me. Or can you stay late? We need you to close tonight. And I remember figuring out in my mind, I was like, jobs are hard. They're difficult, but it's something we are all called to do. We've been walking through the book of Ephesians with one another, and we've already addressed the parent-child relationship, but not all of us will have children. We've already talked about the relationship between husband and wife and what that should look like in Christ, but not all of us will get married. And today we're going to talk about what is our work relationship look like? What does it look like to walk under authority? Because that is something that every single person in this room will be asked to do at some point or another. Maybe you don't have a job right now, but you are under professors or faculty at a school, or someday you're hoping to get a job. Maybe it's a part-time job. Maybe it's a full-time job in your career. Maybe you already manage other people, but we are all called to live and work under the authority of others. So how do we approach that? Forbes in 2014 released this report. They said 52.3% of Americans report that they do not like their current job. They don't enjoy what they do. They're living for the weekend. They're like, this is just a means to an end. I do this to make money. But is there something more to that? So before we jump in, I want to address something. We are called to work in general. And what do I mean by that? If we go back to the beginning of scripture, before the fall of mankind, you can look, there is a call to work that is given to every single person. And if you look here, it says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see these commands. It says, God is saying to Adam and Eve, he says, I want you to make this place better. I want you to take the resources that you find. I want you to manipulate them to make this better. I want you to create things. I want you to rule over this place in such a way that it gives life to other people. So there's a general call to work. It's not something to be avoided. It's not just something we do to get to what we actually want to do. It is commanded by God, but better yet, we have been given specific skills by God to fulfill this. And you say, what does that mean? If we look at Romans, Romans chapter 12, it says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. And he goes on and he begins to explain, if this is your gift, then I want you to use it this way. And if you have a different gift, if you have a gift of teaching, I want you to use it this way. If you have the gift of mercy, I want you to use it this way. So each one of us has been given specific gifts, specific skills. Some of us are natural leaders and we can lead people, influence people. Others of us, we're more artistic or whatever. And we can, we can create things that other people see as beautiful and inspire other people. We have different skills. So we are called to use our skills, but not just in general, but in particular. So it's important to address this question. How do we approach our work? How do we approach this this thing that we spend so many of our waking hours doing? Or, Or in particular, how does a mature believer approach their job, approach their work, approach their school? So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to be starting in verse 5. 
We'll go all the way to verse nine. Uh, But we're going to be looking at three different things today. A mature believer approaches their work with a posture of obedience, Christ as their motivation, and a correct view of themselves. So those are the three things. Uh, So if you have a Bible, read with me, and it'll also be on the screen. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5. He's going to say, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service. Uh, as, as to the Lord and not to men. And so there's a, there's a big issue here that we see, and, and maybe you see right off the bat, that first word, we see slaves. And, and you're saying, okay, what? I thought we were talking about work. What is going on here? Why is Paul writing about slavery? And here's the question that we should be asking ourselves. Does the Bible approve of slavery? Does the Bible promote slavery and says in the kingdom of God, there's room for slaves and masters? Or worse, is, is the Bible making room for the mistreatment of people? So before we go any farther, I want to deal with this issue. Why is slavery in the Bible? The word here for slave, this first word uh, in in verse five is this word doulos. Many of you guys know this word. We've named Bible studies after this, but it can be translated slave, bond servant, or just servant. So depending on what your translation is, that's the word that is there. It is this doulos. It uh, It is someone who is under the authority of someone else. They are subject to the will of another person, specifically in context of work, in their home, or in carrying out the duties. So I, if I am a master and someone else is a slave, they, I dictate their schedule. I dictate how they spend their time. They carry out my will. They are under my authority. And there's two things I want us to keep in mind as we're looking at this passage, which I think help us draw applications out of it today. The first is context is so important because many of us, when we hear slaves, we think of 16th century, 17th century slavery with, where there's cruel mistreatment and the violation of the humanity of people. And in the context we find ourselves when this is written, when Ephesians is written, is in the first century in Rome. And so there's a couple distinctions uh, between first century slavery and slavery of the 17th and the 18th centuries. And what are those? Well, often slaves were indistinguishable in the streets from those who were free. Slaves could actually uh, go out into the marketplace. They could uh, fulfill jobs. They were specialized in different areas. They could, they could become, uh, they could practice medicine. They could even be teachers. Uh, they had families. They could gain and maintain independence, even under the authority of their master. So there was a lot of autonomy given to slaves in the first century. But most importantly, freedom could be gained by slaves through fulfilling their commitments to their master. Uh, And that's an important distinction. This wasn't necessarily a lifelong thing that they were under. Some people were born into slavery, but if they fulfilled their commitments, more often than not, they could be free from their obligation to their master. But I don't want to overstate that too much because they were still seen as slaves. They were still seen as the property of someone else. And in often, in a lot of cases, slaves could be mistreated by their masters. And so the second, that leads us to the second thing. The New Testament redeems the slave-master relationship. What do I mean by that? 
in a world where slavery and the mistreatment of slaves would be perfectly acceptable and no one would really question it as, okay, that's your property. The New Testament speaks out and doesn't necessarily attempt to remove the title of slave and the title of master, but tries to redefine what it means to be someone's slave and to be someone's master. The Bible is much more concerned with doing that. And so you see in the passages like Galatians 3, There is neither slave nor free for all are one in Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying here? He's saying when it comes to a person's salvation entrance into the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter what their status was, what their job title was, who was a slave, who was a master. Everyone gets in the same way by faith in Christ. God is not looking for people of high prestige over people of lowly status. He's saying there's neither slave nor free. When you enter into the kingdom of God, 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 God admits people by the same standard. And even within the family of God, all people are valued the same. And even, uh, maybe even a better example is found in Philemon. If you've ever read the book, it's a short book. You see Philemon and you see his master Onesimus. Paul is writing to Onesimus, who is a slave owner, And Philemon is his escaped slave. And Paul meets Philemon and he sends him back to Onesimus. And look at what he writes. He says, Onesimus, I want you to receive Philemon no longer as a bondservant or a slave, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother. And so you see the New Testament continuously redefines what this relationship was to look like. Instead of trying to just eliminate the usage of the titles. So let's, Uh, Keep going forward. We see slaves be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. So this is the exact same command that Paul gave children in regard to their parents. He said, children, obey your parents. He says, slaves, obey your masters. So these are principles that are given under ideal circumstances. The, The general assumption here is that the slave and the master in this situation are both believers. And so he says, you should have this posture of obedience towards your master. Why? Because you should assume that they are looking out for your best interests. That is how this healthy relationship works. Um, it was funny. And uh, my wife came home from work this week and uh, she was talking about a student in her class. She's a first grade teacher and uh, she was trying to, it was cold outside. I think it was the Friday after it snowed and the kids were going outside to play in the snow. And she was trying to get this kid to put a hat on his head, like a beanie. And the kid, she was like, okay, I need you to put your hat on. And what he does is he pulls it all the way down over his eyes and he goes, see, I did it. I, I put on my hat. Uh, and, and she's like, well, you, yeah, you, okay, you put on your hat, but you put it on wrong. And that doesn't, that's not the same thing. And so when Paul is calling us to obedience, there's different ways that this can play out, right? You can be obedient in one sense, but disobedient at the same time. So he's saying, I want you to be truly obedient. So he's going to flesh out here, what does it mean to be obedient? And so he's going to list off seven different things here. And he says, I want you to be obedient. Read with me. In verse five, he says, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear. What does that mean? I think a better translation of fear is respect. He says, I want you to give respect to those who are your masters. I want you to give honor to those who are your masters. And then he goes on. He says, and trembling. And we hear fear and trembling. We're like, 
ah, I don't like that. Uh, but fear, I think, means respect and honor. And trembling means care and thoughtfulness. He says, I want you to approach your job not lightly. I want you to take it seriously. I want you to think about the tasks that you have. And I want you to treat that with care. I want you to approach your master and what they say with care and thoughtfulness. Uh, my family and I are huge sports fans. Anything with a ball and a scoreboard, we're like, we're going to be there. We're going to buy a ticket. We're going we're gonna to go watch it. Um, but we one time had the opportunity uh, to sit on the second row of a Rockets game. Uh, and so you're down there and you're seeing the height and the size of some of these basketball players. And you're just like, oh my goodness. Like if they wanted to, they could destroy me. Like if they chose so, like, and you see how big they are and there's this healthy respect. And then in the row in front of us, we see sit down in his chair is Akeem Olajuwon. And he's, he's like, I could touch him. And we just see him sit down and he's one of the biggest Rockets legends of all time. And he's literally giant too. Uh, but he is, he sits down. And there's this fear and trembling in a sense that comes over because you know what this man has accomplished in all these NBA championships and all this. And and we tried to ask for his uh, signature and autograph. And there's a respect, there's a care that comes with asking someone who is accomplished, who is in authority. And I think that's a similar principle here. There is a care and respect. Don't do this haphazardly. He says, I want you to carry out the will of your master with care, with thoughtfulness, with respect. And he keeps going. And he says, I want you to do this in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. What does he mean? And I think uh, a better way to translate this, uh, sincerity literally means without fold or simple. Uh, And so a good way to translate this is um, not manipulating others or without strings attached. Uh, And you say, what does that mean? Sometimes we can make decisions in our career or in our jobs where we say, okay, like I'm, I'm looking out for number one. I'm going to do something that helps me to the disregard of others. Um, I remember uh, one time a a friend of mine, a a guy I really respect who was a youth leader uh, asked to be, uh, he said, Hey, I'm considering doing the fellows program. And, I, and we were sitting down and we talked and I said, okay, let's talk about your future. Let's talk about what you're going to do. And the fellows program here uh, is a two-year internship looking for people going into ministry. And after talking with him, I remember thinking, man, I want what's best for you. And I don't think this is the next best step. I, you're, you're not thinking about going into full-time ministry. You're not thinking of doing these things. So although I could use the labor and use the, 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 the extra hand and I respect you as a person, this is not the next best step for your career. And, and so we had to tell him no on that. And, and so I think that there's, there's a lesson here. He says, do your job with the sincerity of heart. Don't manipulate other people for your own advantage. Look out for the interests of other people. Do your job sincerely. And he keeps going. The fourth thing he says, not by way of eye service, he says, which means be consistent. So uh, me and my wife, we have two cats. Uh, this is Marley and Ellie. Uh, I don't know if you're a cat person or a dog person. Doesn't matter. Um, so we have these two cats and uh, they're cute. They're great. Uh, but don't let them fool you because they can uh, wreak havoc. Me and my wife were trying uh, to uh, get a jump on the holiday season this year. And so we were like, we're going to be smart. We're going to be super smart. We're going to set up all of our Christmas decorations uh, right before we leave for Thanksgiving break. That way, when we come back, we can step into a winter wonderland of joy and uh, we can enjoy ourselves. Uh, and it was funny because as soon as we got it all set up, uh, immediately the cats were like, sensory overload. 
Like everything they just want to jump on and tackle. And so we find ourselves consistently like telling them, no, you need to step away from that. You can't eat that. We were constantly yelling at them at the dinner table. It's a habit now where we tell them, okay, we need you to back away from the Christmas tree. There's nothing good there. And then we see them grab a bow and try to run off and we have to stop them. Uh, and, and my poor wife, uh, you know, we all left and I guess we, uh, maybe the door didn't shut or we forgot to lock up the cats that day. Uh, and we come home to find our Christmas tree tackled. Um, and I remember thinking, uh, not by way of eye service cats. Um, and, uh, uh, and so we, I, I saw this, you know, you, the cats would pay attention. They would listen when you were there, but as soon as you were gone, they were like, no rules, let's go. Uh, and, and they tackled the tree, I guess. I don't know. And it's funny because since then they've stayed completely away. So there was carnage. Um, but, but you see this take place. They were looking to obey only when their eye, when someone's eye was upon them. And I think what the scriptures are calling us here, he says, not by way of eye service. He says, you should be consistent in your work, whether someone is watching or someone is not. And this, this next one is like it. He says, not as men pleasers. And he says, and you shouldn't do it for the recognition either. And so he says, your work should be consistent, whether you know you will get credit for it or not. This is what it means to be obedient. And so two more. He says, doing the will of God from the heart, which I love this because this word for heart is not really the, the, it's not the word that you would typically use. It's a word that means uh, soul or like the bottom of who you are. And so it's best translated maybe as wholehearted. Do this with everything that you are. And I know college kids, it's so easy sometimes to be enrolled in a class and you are easy to, it's easy to say like, okay, like I don't get anything out of going to this class. My teacher doesn't even teach. Like he doesn't even do that. Uh, I've said that before. Um, and, and sometimes we do, we, we go to school, but our, we, we find our passions elsewhere. And, and so we don't do school with everything our whole, with our whole heart. We don't do it with everything in us. We see school as a means maybe to the organizations that we're in. And we're like, okay, I can be at A&M. I can be at Blinn just because that means I can be in this organization. And we don't value the time we have here in school or the professors who have been placed over us. And so I think about that and I say, man, we need to take advantage. We do things with our whole heart. That doesn't mean we're perfect or straight A, but it means we do it to the best of our ability. And so Paul's calling us out of that. And then he says, with goodwill, render service, which I think it can be interpreted as do this with a good attitude and with willingness. He says, seek the best interests of those around. Don't be, don't be, don't be, don't be difficult to pull along, but be willing to jump in. And you look at this list and you say, oh gosh, that's a lot. There's a lot going on here. This seems difficult. Uh, and I, and it is difficult. And I remember my first job in ministry ever. Um, I remember I I'd had a job. It was a, a church just south of Houston. And I was a summer intern. And I was getting paid a, a, a whopping salary of $500 for the whole summer, uh, which I was there for like eight to 10 weeks, which is $50 a week, I think. Uh, and so, you know, about, and I remember thinking that I was like, okay, the, the, I did love, I love my job. I wanted the experience. I wanted to do ministry. Uh, and I got to do that. I had opportunities where I got to teach Bible studies. I had opportunities where I got to speak and counsel students. But then there also came these moments when we would go to camp or we would do something fun in the day and we'd get back and we'd have to clean up. And I remember my youth pastor, my boss at the time, he'd said, hey, there's these five, six, seven coolers here. I want you to clean these. This is, this is your job to do today. And I remember thinking and being tempted in that moment to say, this is not what I signed up for. 
This is not why I am here. This is not exactly what I'm looking for. And I had to make a choice in that moment. No, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be obedient to the person who's in authority over me. And I chose to clean those coolers. And it turns out that summer, even in the midst of those things, in that lowly position, that was a massive time of growth. And so, so many of us are anxious to get to the next step. We're anxious to see, man, we deserve to be higher up in this organizational chart. We deserve to be in this class or a part of this organization. And really, God has has us where we are. He's placed the authority over us for a reason because he's shaping us and he's molding us. And some of us need to be obedient to that. Uh, But I totally understand this is difficult to do. And Paul anticipates that, which is why he says, I want Christ to be your motivation. And so you look, first he says, I want you to know the comfort of Christ. What do I mean by that? If we look back at this scripture here, you see continuously, he says, I want you to do these things as to Christ, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God as to the Lord and not to men. Why would he say that? Because Paul knows in our hearts, if, if our obedience depends upon the faithfulness and the abilities of our leaders, we will always be able to find a reason to not be obedient to them. Does that make sense? We can look at our professors, we can look at our leaders, and we can say, this is where their flaws are. They don't deserve my respect. And Paul knows that, and he says, I want you to get your mind off of the person in authority over you. And I want you to get your mind on the person who is in authority over everything. He says, I want you to set your mind on Christ because that is where you're going to find your motivation. In December, 2014, I was uh, in seminary uh, and I was doing a lot at the time. I was, I was busy. I was taking like 12, 13 hours of, of seminary coursework. And I was in the midst of finals at that time. I was also working 25, 30 hours at a church. Uh, and so I was trying to prepare Bible studies and teaching junior high kids on Wednesday night. Uh, and then on top of all that, I was engaged uh, to my wife, Emily, and we were getting married uh, in just a little over three, four weeks. So there was a lot going on. Uh, and I remember being stressed. And if you're like me, uh, when I get stressed, I like to take a piece of paper and try to write down everything that I have in front of me. I'm like, if I can hold it, I can manage it. I can do this. Uh, and th- then I like to add like even like freebies on there, like eat breakfast, tie your shoes. And you're like, check, check. I'm done with a third of my list already. This is great. Uh, and it helps motivate yourself. And I remember just having this long list of, man, I, gotta, I just got to take this test. I got to prepare this. I got to drop off this. I got to make sure my groomsmen have this, the right sizes for this and the right colors for this. And I remember there was a lot. Uh, and in the midst of that moment, I was like, oh, there's so much going on. But I knew that what was waiting for me at the end of those two, three very difficult weeks, it was my wife. I knew that regardless of what was going to happen in those three weeks, if I persevered, if I tried, if I, if I withstood the trial and did it faithfully, did it honestly, my wife would be waiting for me and we would be married at the end. And as I had my mind set on that reality, that truth, I found strength. I found motivation. And if that is the case for our earthly relationships, husband and wife. How much more as we set our minds on our Lord will we be encouraged? And so some of us have an opportunity during this break. Students, college kids, you guys get a month off from school. And sometimes this is, a, this is an opportunity to step away. And for the first time, maybe this semester, to think about why do I get up in the morning? 
Or has my routine just been alarm clock, rush to school, go to class, eat lunch, and then just barely make it to my bed at a reasonable hour and then repeat it all again. And you're just going, going, going. Or maybe you're in a job and it's just going, going, going all the time. And you need to reset yourself. I love what the book of Matthew says in chapter one. It's Mary and Joseph are freaking out because uh, Mary is pregnant and Joseph's like, I don't know what to do with this. Like, should I divorce her? And an angel says, don't do that. And I love what the angel says. He says, you shall name this child Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And as I think about that verse, and I've been just meditating it on this week, It'll, he, Jesus, he, his name should be Jesus for, because he's going to save me from my sins. He's going to save us from our sins. And we need to rest in that. When's the last time you just meditated and thought and chewed on that for a little bit? Where you say, when I think about what Jesus has done on the cross, he has paid in full the debt that I owe. That releases us from an identity to have to be someone, to have to be a certain, to be a certain standard because Christ has fulfilled everything that we were called to be. So we're free to serve. We're free to give up. That's why the book of Hebrews continuously over and over and over again is not so much emphasizing you need to be a better person. You need to be a more obedient person. Instead, the book of Hebrews points us to make every effort to enter into the rest of God. Don't fall short of the rest of God. And, and, and Jesus will even say, come who are weary and heavy laden and you will find rest in me. And some of us just need to remember that and hear that. When we approach our work and our identity is wrapped in our work and we feel like we need to do it and we need to accomplish that long list of, man, I need to be obedient in this certain way. It exhausts us when we don't have a relationship with Christ, when we're not abiding in what Christ has done for us. And here today we can know Christ has done the work for us. Christ says on the cross, it is finished. Not now it's your turn. He says it is done. And we can rest in what Christ has done for us. And that frees us to work and to move and to to live faithfully in obedience to our masters. And he gives us another motivation here. He says, I want you to know the comfort of Christ. But then he says, I also want you to value an eternity with Christ. So keep reading. He says, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. What is he saying? Why would he say that? In a very real way, he says, if you faithfully do this, if you strive to be obedient and you honor your masters here, if you honor your boss, even when they don't deserve it, when it's difficult, when that person at work is just nagging you and you're like, oh, if they just, when you serve faithfully in the midst of that, Paul is saying there will be rewards waiting for you because the one who sees everything is watching and he's with you. And so we see this in other parts of scripture. You see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." And so you see, there's this principle in the scriptures when we are faithful with the task set before us as believers, 
There's rewards waiting for us. And so Paul says, I want you to be comforted by what Christ has done. And I want you to think about eternity and what's waiting for you. And that is how we motivate ourselves. That is how we can persevere. That is how we can be strong. And that is something that does not happen on our own, but it can happen in the power of the spirit that lives in us. And inevitably, as we continue in our, uh, as we continue in our careers, maybe some of us, most of us will have an opportunity to manage other people. God will place you in authority over someone else. Not all of us necessarily, but most of us will have a time where we are put in charge by God to care for maybe it's employees or maybe it's other students or maybe it's just in charge of an organization. And God will say, I'm placing you here. And look what he says. He says, masters have the same commands as slaves. So read the text. He says, and masters do the same things to them. So like, think about that for a second. He's saying, masters, you have every right to claim this certain, uh, this certain set of standards, this certain, all these things from your slaves. It is totally in your rights to do so. But what I want you to do instead is to do the same things that I just commanded the slaves to do. And what he's not trying to say is, man, let's eliminate all jobs. And so there's no bosses and no masters. And it's, uh, it's all open concept and we just do what we want. He's trying to say, the, the same principles that I just asked the slaves to live by, that I just asked the employees to live by, that I just asked the servants to live by. He says, if you're a boss, if you're a master, I want you to live by the exact same principles. And so he says, I want you to care for, I want you to work wholeheartedly with sincerity, without hypocrisy, with care and respect for others. And you might be asking, why? Why should we do that? Because that is the exact standard that Christ has set for us. And so in the, in, the, in the moments before Christ went to the cross, you can see this on full display. And this is one of the most mind-boggling pieces of scripture. As I just think through it over and over, I cannot understand it because of all that is going on. Read with me. It says in John chapter 13, verses 2 through 5, it says, During supper... The devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And I look at that passage of scripture and I say, what is going on here? You see Jesus knowing what Judas is about to do with him. He's about to betray him. He is washing the disciples' feet. He knows what Peter's about to do to him. He's about to deny him. He knows that the rest of the disciples are just going to disappear. And he says, what I'm going to choose to do with my final moments with my disciples, although I have every right to claim otherwise, I'm going to spend my, I'm going to spend my moments as their master washing their feet. Why does he do that? It's to set a standard for how masters should operate today. We care for those who are placed in authority under us, that we have been given authority over. And so we are called to do the same. 
And so you see masters have the same commands, but masters also ultimately have the same heavenly master as their slaves. And you read and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. And so you see here, masters, bosses, he says, at the end of the day, the same rewards are going to be made available to you for being faithful because your master is the same. And so there's a challenge. He says, he gives, give up threatening, give up mistreatment. He goes, if you are faithful in treating those in authority or those who are under you, under your authority, he says, if you persevere in that and you serve them like Jesus did, he says, your master is the same. You will receive the same rewards. But also there is no right that you have over another person because ultimately we are all servants of Christ. And so there's no more room for pride and arrogance in the kingdom of God. He says, it doesn't make sense because all of us bow our knee to Christ. And so we look at this passage and we see what is a mature believer? How do they approach their work? Well, how do they do that? And we see they approach their work with a posture of obedience, with Christ as their motivation, and with a correct view of themselves. And as the community of believers begins to implement these kinds of principles and these things, it is the most evangelistic thing that we can possibly do sometimes. When, what does Jesus say? He says, how will I know, how will the world know that you are my disciples? He says, because of the way that you love one another. And that's not just for peers, but that is for masters and slaves, bosses and employees, teachers and students. When we see, when the world sees that we treat people differently, it changes their view and causes them to say, why are they different? And so as far as application goes today, there's a couple questions that I want us to ask ourselves Man, are there, is there anyone that we need to ask forgiveness from today? Man, is there someone, man, is there a professor that we've just been dogging with our friends over and over and over again? We just said, they're unfair. They're this, they're that. This, there's, there's, man, I, they don't even deserve my attendance in their class. And that's been my posture all semester. Man, do we need to, do we need to seek forgiveness for something? Or is there an employee or boss whom we have wronged? We say, they don't deserve my respect. Or maybe we're just not relying upon Jesus day by day when we approach our work. And we say, I, my identity has been wrapped up in my career, in what I do, instead of resting in the freedom that Christ has given me. Or maybe we need to take some of those seven qualities given of obedience in this chapter and just evaluate where we have been at. And so what I want to do, if you would bow your head with me, I'm going to pray for us. And if you need to take a moment and evaluate and pray, you have the room to do that. But let me pray for us. Father, I just pray over our congregation. God, and I, I pray that you would help us to become people who treat one another not the way that they deserve to be treated, Because God, at the end of the day, a lot of us don't deserve to be treated well. 
God, we make mistakes, we do things, we say things, and we immediately regret them. But I pray that instead we would treat one another as Christ. And may Christ be our standard. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be able to cultivate an identity where we approach our work not as something, as a means to an end, but as a ministry to reflect the person of Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to identify the areas where maybe we are not obedient to those who have been placed in authority over us. And Lord, help us to be obedient to the call for those, uh, to, to, to treat those with care and respect who have been placed underneath our authority. God, and may the world see us treating one another differently in the name of Jesus Christ this week. And so God, we pray all this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Awesome.